Well, we've taken about a three-week break at least from Genesis, and we're going to go back there today. And Lord willing, we're going to actually cover approximately 14 chapters in one message. And i got to tell you, these 14 chapters I could spend 14 weeks easily on. They're so filled with amazing, amazing things. So I hope you're reading along on your own, studying on your own. The whole book of Genesis, uh, for me, has been just a, a fun thing to go through again. You know, when you go out and get a book, buy a book, oftentimes there's that first few pages that's called the prologue, right? And the prologue kind of gives you an idea of what's coming in the rest of the book. And if you wanted to, we could almost look like the enti- look at the entire book of Genesis as a prologue telling us about the history of God's chosen people, Israel. It really is an amazing book. We're going to be looking at a brief review here, so there's not going to be anything really on the, on the screen for this except one scripture. But in chapters 1 through 11, which most of us are pretty familiar with the stories, we had the creation story. Then we, of course, had the fall of man's sin when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the consequences of which we are still living with today. Then we had God's judgment on the earth at that time in the, in the story of Noah and the ark. And Noah and his family were the only ones that survived God's judgment. And then it took us to the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is really significant for the fact that that is where languages were con- confused, mixed up. The people were scattered around the known part of the world at that time. And that's where we see the development of nations for the very first time. And in Genesis 12 through 24, the focus was primarily on Abraham, or Father Abraham, as the Jewish people would refer to him, because this is when we see the beginning of God's chosen people. He chose Abraham, not because he deserved it, not because he did anything special, because God chose him. And we see in those chapters, 12 through 24, all the way up to when uh, Isaac, Isaac uh, his son, they, they find him a wife to continue on. There is a scripture there that I do want us to look at in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, because this is so significant and part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant that actually affects every single one of us because as it was fulfilled... And made available salvation to all of us to become a part of God's family. In verse 17, it says, I will surely bless you. God, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham. I will surely bless you and make your descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And the covenant was elaborated on in different places in that section of Scripture. But God speaking to Abraham that there will come a day when all the descendants of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, the Messiah that he sent. Chapters 25 through 27, the focus was primarily on Isaiah and Rebekah and their two sons, Jacob and Esau. It's interesting, Isaac does not get much uh, print in our scriptures. We primarily see the selection of a wife and how that took place 
And then we see the story about Jacob and Esau, their two sons. And we see the story of where Jacob basically traded Esau for his birthright as the firstborn for a bowl of soup. And in the Jewish culture, the birthright was a very, very significant thing. And then with the help of his mother, um, Rachel, excuse me, Rebecca, they connived together to not only steal the birthright, but also to steal the blessing that was due to the eldest son, Esau. And that's the significant parts of the story that we see in those two chapters. And then in chapters 28 through 36, Jacob, because of what happened between he and Esau, flees to get away from his brother and what he assumed would be the anger and hatred of his brother. And he goes to an uncle named Laban. And he goes also to find a wife so he doesn't marry somebody from the Canaanites or the the unbelieving pagan peoples around them. And he sees this woman named Rachel. And he falls in love with her. And he talks to Laban and his uncle and and, uh, says he wants to marry her. And he says yes, but he tricks him. And after seven years of serving him to get his daughter, Rachel, as his wife, he's fooled and he ends up sleeping with the older sister first. And he has to work another seven years to get Rachel as his wife. And Esau, or Jacob actually spends 20 years with Laban before he returns to Canaan, what will eventually be the promised land. And during that time, he has at least 13 children that were told clearly. Twelve sons, one daughter, from four different women, from Leah and Rachel, his wives, but also their handmaids, because there was trouble with getting pregnant. So we're to this place where the what will become the 12 tribes of Israel are in our history in the book of Genesis. And he returns to Canaan. And then chapters 37 through 50, where we're going to pick up today, we see the life of a man named Joseph. And when we look at the life of Joseph, I would go out on a limb to say, other than the life of Jesus, there does not seem to be a more significant and amazing life in all of the scriptures. In all of the scriptures. Fourteen chapters of the Bible are designated to Joseph and his story. You know, sometimes I think as Christians we fall into a little bit of a snare, a trap of thinking as long as we're moving forward to what we feel God's called us into, as long as we feel like we're submitting to the Holy Spirit and and going towards that destiny that God has for us, as long as we think we're walking in the will of God, we think everything's supposed to be perfect, smooth sailing. How can it not be, right? Well, that's not the case. There are going to be pitfalls. There are going to be mountains to climb. There are going to be deep valleys in the midst of that travel. There are going to be many bumps around the road, along the road to our destiny. That's the title of the message this morning is The Bumpy Road to Our Destiny. Oh, that it would be smooth sailing, but it's not smooth sailing. 
and it's not intended to be smooth sailing. We're going to be looking at this man called Joseph. And we're going to see what it can look like to reach your destiny. So what does it take for us? What does it take for people when we're walking out our destiny and things aren't going smoothly according to our plan? Not happening in our time. There's really some tragic things in the way of us fulfilling our destiny. What do we do? I, I think I just wrote down five things I just want to mention quickly. Number one, when we're in this situation, number one of greatest importance, more important than anything else is our faith in God. Knowing who He is and what His promises are. That's the most important thing in getting us through the challenges and the difficult times and the bumps in the road that we are going to run into. Above all else. The second thing I wrote down was to know and really receive a vision for God, from God for our lives. Now, we're not going to get the whole picture. But as long as we sense the Holy Spirit's leading, we have a vision where God wants to take us, where we're headed. As long as that vision's there, it helps us keep us focused and it'll give us a greater passion, which would be the third thing. We need a passion, not, not only for God, but for the vision for the call that he has on our life. Our, our, our passion towards the Lord should be, how do we bring him glory? We were created to bring him glory and created to bring him honor. And by watching, walking in the vision, the calling that he has for us, that's what we do as long as we remain faithful to him in the midst of this, which requires my fourth little thing. We need to walk in humility and surrender. And that's not easy for human beings. We need to continually humble ourselves before the Lord. This goes back to step one. Do we trust Him? Do we have faith in Him? Do we believe in Him? Do we believe what the Word says about Him? Do we believe the promises that He has for us? Do we believe all these things? And we need to humble ourselves and surrender to those truths as we're going through those difficult times. Trusting Him completely. And the last thing I wrote down, and you could add many things and put them in any order you want other than belief in God, was relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with the Lord, which goes all the way back to my first point, but having a relationship with the Lord that's kept alive, that's kept fresh by spending time with Him, time in the Word, time in prayer, but also relationships with others. We are not going down our road alone all the time. Yes, there are certain things that God has for us that are going to be different from anybody else. But that doesn't mean we're to walk it alone. We need one another. We need relationships. Whether it's individually or even corporately as a church, we need unity. We need unity with our spouses in our homes. We need unity that we're walking alongside with, building the kingdom together with. We need unity. And those things are the things that will keep us on track when things go Let's just say they're not smooth. We don't like it. It's not what we want. And when we look at the life of Joseph, we are going to be looking at the life of a man that faced what could have been overwhelming hurt, overwhelming rejection, abandonment, accusation, all of these things coming his way, betrayal, 
gal, betrayal can throw us for a real loop. He faced all of these things, but he stayed on track. He was faithful to the Lord through it all. So just because this is a familiar story, I want to encourage you, don't tune out, okay? Sometimes we hear a familiar story, it's easy. Well, I've heard that story a million times going back to this big in Sunday school. But what I really want us to catch today and focuses on, focus on is how, how God demonstrates to us so that we can learn more about his, or maybe not learn more, but be reminded of God's faithfulness, of his sovereignty, but also to be reminded of our responsibility in this process. Our responsibility to be faithful, to be humble, to be obedient. God can do whatever he wants, but you know what? He is not going to force any of us to arrive at our destiny. We have to be faithful as he is faithful, and he will bless us in that walk. So the story of Joseph. I want to just plug a book that I read a number of years ago. It's called God Meant It for Good by R.T. Kendall, if you're interested. It's based on the life of Joseph. It's a powerful book. It would be a blessing if you want to read it. God Meant It for Good by R.T. Kendall. Starting in chapter 37, in the first four verses, it kind of sets the scene for us. We discover quite quickly that Joseph is just a young guy. He's only 17 years old. He has a younger brother we don't hear much about. Benjamin probably would have been about four years old. And then he's got those ten older brothers. And it tells us quite quickly, they hate him. They hate him. It says they hate him and they don't even have a good word to say about him ever when they greet him or anything. It's not even like they try to be nice to Joseph. Why do they hate him so much? Well, there's a few reasons that we see in the Scripture. One, he tended to be one who would tell on his brothers if they weren't doing things right. He'd go to dad. And he was dad's favorite. That didn't help. Favoritism in the family usually doesn't bear good fruit. But he was the favorite. And he may have been the favorite because he was the first son of his best-loved wife, Rachel. And they waited a long time for her barrenness to end. So we get get the scene set, and Dad says to him, hey, your brothers are out taking care of the flocks. I want you to go check on them and then report back to me again. And he finally finds them, as you go through the story, and they see him coming from a long ways away. And they make a plan to kill him. Why did they do this? Well, the most recent events that took place was Joseph had two dreams. Now, remember, he's only 17 years old, so he may not have handled this as best he could have with a little more maturity. But he has two dreams. And then he goes to the mistake of going to his brothers who already hate him and says, hey, guys, I had this dream. We were all out in the field binding sheaves of grain, and all of a sudden my sheaves stood up erect And all 11 of your sheaves bowed down before me. That went over really well. They hated him even more. And if that wasn't bad enough, he has a second dream. In the second dream, he makes the mistake of telling his father as well. And he tells him, he says, this dream, it's really an amazing dream. The, The sun and the moon and 11 stars all bow down to me. Now, you can imagine, 
what was going through the brothers' minds at this time. And even in this case, the father rebukes him. And the father rebukes him in verse 10, and he says to him, Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Like, they recognized the symbolism of the dreams. Then the dad says this at the very end of his rebuke. Or he thinks this, actually. It says, he kept these things in his mind. Jacob says, hmm, maybe this is from the Lord. Maybe these dreams are from God. And and Joseph had shared this with those that hated him. So now here he comes out into the the pastures to check on his brothers again. And they see him coming and they go, oh boy, here comes that dreamer. You can almost feel the sarcasm and hatred in the words they're speaking. And they see him coming from a distance and they say, you know what? Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a pit, kill him, and we'll just tell dad that the wild animals got to him and, you know, he's gone. But Reuben, the oldest brother, says, hey, hey, we we don't want to kill him. He's our blood. We can't kill him. But let's just throw him in the pit and leave him there. And Reuben, to his credit, was doing that with the intentions of coming back and letting him out, getting him out of the pit and getting him back to his dad. But the rest of them didn't know that. And Reuben then seems to, to disappear from the scene for a little while. And the brothers are all sitting there. The poor 17-year-old Joseph sitting in a pit. And here comes a caravan of Ishmaelites. Referred to also as Midianites. And they're headed to Egypt. And the brothers say, hey, why leave him in the pit when we could sell him to them and make some money off this deal? And that's what they do. So Joseph's brothers had potted to kill him. They threw him in a pit, intending to leave him there to die. And now he is sold to a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, they take him to the slave market. How's your day so far, Joseph? But God had given you a dream that all your family is going to one day bow down before you. It's not going real well so far. And at the slave market in Egypt, a man by the name of Potiphar buys him. And it turns out that he's a chief of Pharaoh's guards, a very powerful and important man. And Joseph is now a slave. And then in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, it says this about Joseph. It says, I'll read, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And the, all that lived in the, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So, you know, I read that and you just can go right past it, but you got to say to yourself, wait a minute, his brothers wanted to kill him. They threw him in a pit to die. They took him out and sold him to the Ishmaelites. They sold him at the slave market and now he's a slave and the Lord is with him. And he prospered. And everything he did in the house of Potiphar prospered. So Potiphar left him in charge of everything. And then one day, 
Potiphar's wife is looking at this young, the Bible says, good-looking, well-built, impressive young man. And she says, come lie with me. Come sleep with me. And his reaction, his response is, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? In the midst of all of this, he stays faithful and his integrity remains intact. And day after day, she says the same thing to him. And finally, one day, there's no other servants in the house. And he gets too close and she grabs his cloak and says, come lie with me. And she pulls him towards his her bed and he flees. He does the absolute right thing. He flees. He runs. So she tells Potiphar that this Hebrew slave raped her. So now he's accused of rape for doing all the right things. And now he's thrown in prison again for doing the right things. And it says in verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Seriously, can it get much worse? Well, God's hand of protection was upon him because he probably should have been killed by Potiphar, according to their law, but he's thrown in prison. And while in prison, it says that God gave him favor in the eyes of the head jailer, and he managed the jail, whatever that means. And then it's like God opens a door. It seems one day the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh did something. And it really made Pharaoh angry. So he took the cupbearer, the one who would bring him his drink, and the baker who would prepare his food, and it says he threw them both in prison. Just happened to be where Joseph also was. And it says one night, they both had a dream, the same night, the baker and the cupbearer. And the next morning, they're sitting around dejected. They probably shared their dreams with each other. It doesn't tell us that, but they're both dejected, and they're dejected to the extent that Joseph comes in and says, guys, what's wrong with you today? And they said, we both had a dream. And there's no one here to interpret it for us. And Joseph makes clear, when they ask and mention there's no one to interpret, he said, does not interpretation of dreams belong to God? Everywhere he went, he went faithfully, proclaiming his God, maintaining his integrity, his humility. Isn't it from God? And he gives them the interpretation. He goes first to the cupbearer and gives him an interpretation. And he says, basically, here's your dream. That means in three days, you're going to be restored to your position with Pharaoh. Awesome. The baker says, ha, that was a pretty good deal. I'm going to tell what's mine. And he says, yours means three days too. And in three days, he's going to have your head. And in three days, exactly those two things happened. Cupbearer is restored. The baker is hung. Killed. And before they left the jail, 
Joseph said to the cupbearer, you know, when you get back to Pharaoh, remember me. In other words, do me a favor, will you? I've been in jail. I've been a slave. I've been thrown in a pit. My brother sold me. It's, tell him I'm here. Kind of like, help me out a little bit, would you? And it tells us very cruelly, the cupbearer got back into his position and forgot all about Joseph. And he spent another two full years in prison. And I'm going into this detail so you can see that here is Joseph, this one who has this amazing destiny, fulfill the purposes of God. And nothing appears to be going right. But nothing appears as it really is. In the midst of all these circumstances, he remained faithful to God every step of the way. And God remained faithful to him in the midst of it all. While he was sold as a slave to the, in the Egyptian, imprisoned in Pharaoh's jail, no matter what happened, God's favor was on him. And because of that, because he was faithful to God, he received God's blessings every step of the way. As a matter of fact, if you read chapter 39, you're going to see that pointed out five times in one chapter, that God's favor was upon him. And where is he and what's happening? He's a slave and a prisoner. God's favor was upon him. One of the things we should certainly learn from that, the location and our circumstances don't matter with God. When I say don't matter, I don't mean he doesn't care. I don't mean he doesn't love us. What I mean is he's going to accomplish his purpose as long as we're faithful to him. We trust him. He'll bless us. How do we, each one of us, how do we respond when we face those kind of trials and those kind of challenges? Do we remain faithful? Do we see or even look for God's hand in what's taking place while we're walking in these dark valleys sometimes? Do we trust Him? Do we trust Him? In Genesis 41, what I refer to as the final act kind of begins to really unfold. And we're going to see all of a sudden the destiny of Joseph start to really come to fruition. Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And he's really troubled by these dreams. Says that dreams that none of his magicians nor any of the wise men of Egypt could interpret these dreams. And finally, a light bulb goes on in the cupbearer's head. And he says to Pharaoh, there is this Hebrew in jail, your jail, Pharaoh, who told me our dreams, interpreted our dreams, and it happened just as he said it would. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he tells him the two dreams. The dreams are pretty weird. First dream, he says, in my dream, seven sleek, shiny-coated healthy-looking cows came out of the Nile River. And following them out of the Nile River were seven ugly, gaunt, skinny cows that came out of the river. And they devoured the seven healthy, beautiful cows. But even after they devoured them, they still looked ugly and gaunt. And then he says, and then I had a second dream. 
In the second dream, seven ears of grain were on a single stalk. Plump, good, full. And then there were seven uh, seeds of grain that came up, and here the ears were thin, and they were scorched like by drought. It says the, the east winds came, the winds off the deserts came, and these seven ears ate the seven beautiful ears. And when they did, had done that, they still looked scorched and withered. And Pharaoh wants to know the interpretation. And he says, all my magicians and all my wise men couldn't tell me anything. And Pharaoh says, give me the interpretation. And Joseph's response is this, it's not me. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And by favorable, he means an accurate interpretation. And he gives them the interpretation. And I think most of us know the interpretation of these dreams. There were going to be seven years of abundance. There was going to be abundant rainfall. The crops were going to be amazing. There would be so much they would have to build new granaries to store all of the grain and all the food. And all of these things were going to take place for the first seven years. And then there was going to be a drought and a famine that began on the eighth year. And that famine and drought was going to last for seven years. And, the, and Pharaoh says, God, we need somebody to we need somebody to protect us. We need somebody to, to figure out how to how to how to keep us safe. How do we how do we store the food? What do we need to do to prepare for the seven years? And finally he looks at Joseph and says, Well, duh, it's not, obviously it should be you. And all of a sudden, Joseph is put in control of all of Egypt. He's the second most powerful man behind Pharaoh alone in all of Egypt. He's now 30 years old. 13 years have passed from the time he, approximate time he had those dreams. His brothers plotted to kill him. He was thrown in the pit. He's sold to the Ishmaelites. He's sold in a slave market in Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house. He gets accused of rape and he's thrown in jail. 13 years have passed and finally, seems to be in that place of his destiny. Boy, talk about preparation for leadership. He was prepared. If you and I would look at that and make a plan for Joseph to become the second most powerful man in the whole world at that time, basically, it probably wouldn't have looked like this plan. But we could look at this and say every step of the way had to happen for the next step to occur. How would you get to a place from being the 11th child hated by your 10 older brothers to the second most powerful man in the world? How could that happen? Well, not the way we would have planned it. It's going to happen, Joseph, because you're going to be sold. You're going to be a prisoner. You're going to be a slave. You're going to be accused of rape. You're going to get thrown in jail more than once. You're going to spend the next 13 years either as a slave or a prisoner. Are you in? How do we respond? How would we do? 13 years. And he remained faithful. 
each step of the way as God's plan was unfolding. I'm guessing he had a few bad evenings, but he remained faithful to God. And God continued to bless him every step of the way. God's timing, our timing, and you notice they're usually not the same. His ways and our ways don't seem to line up all the time. Scripture tells us clearly his thoughts aren't our thoughts. But the reality is every single one of us have a destiny and a purpose in the plan of God. Every single one of us. And what that path looks like, only God knows. And we have to walk that path and remain faithful. It happened just as Joseph said. There were seven years of abundance, followed by the seven years of drought and famine. Joseph is in charge of everything. When you read the story before it's all over, Pharaoh owns everything. He owns everything, including all the people and all the, all the land. He owns it all. And people from other parts of the world have to come if they want to get food and they have to buy it with whatever they have or they're going to starve and die. And eventually, Jacob, Joseph's father, and his family, all his sons and daughters, are beginning to suffer greatly in this famine. So we're now two years into the famine. So Joseph has been the most powerful man, in second most powerful man in Egypt for now nine years. So what that means is 22 years have passed since his brothers threw him in the pit and took him out and sold him as a slave. 22 years. In Genesis 42, verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. In verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them. 22 years had passed. And the dream was fulfilled almost completely. His brothers were bowing before him. They didn't recognize him. 22 years had passed. He was 17 when it started. Now he's 39 years old. He's dressed in the finery of Egypt. They had no idea who he was. You need to read the story. They came and he gave them food and there were so many things that transpired in the midst of this story. And then they had to come again and this time they had to come and they had to bring Benjamin, the younger brother who dad didn't want him to go anywhere because he'd lost Joseph. And he comes. And then in verse, chapter 45, verses 4 through 8, Please, come closer to me. This is the second time they've been there. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see the response? And his, their response, we can get an idea from Joseph's next words. He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the words in that little brief, brief statement. God sent me before you. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Go back and get your dad and bring your relatives. Come to Egypt. I'll take care of you. Seventy-five members of his family came to Egypt and turned into hundreds of thousands. Before it was all over and they were let out of Egypt, it was in the millions. But they were led into Egypt and taken care of. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph has died. Or excuse me, Jacob has now died. So the brothers had been thinking, well, he's been treating us pretty good, but it's probably just for our father's sake, being he's very old. Now he's dead. We're in trouble. He is probably going to get his revenge now that dad's no longer with us. So they make a plan again. These guys should know better by now. They make a plan again and say, let's tell him that dad's dying wishes were that you would not get revenge and that you would take care of the family. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 17. This is what you should say to Joseph. They're making this up, of course. And they're saying, this is what dad told us to tell you. Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept, and he spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In verse 20, the focus. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, and to bring up, in order to bring about the present result, to preserve many people alive. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What the devil intends for evil, God will use it for good for those who believe. You can see, almost see behind the scenes, the devil trying to stop and prevent Joseph from achieving his destiny. The, the devil knew the, the covenant that had been made with Abraham, and he did everything he could to stop this every step of the way, starting with his brothers, all the way through. But he was going to keep his people alive. Joseph had heard God in those two dreams. It appears certain that the interpretation was clear to the brothers and his dad. I believe it was a seed planted in Joseph at a young age of 17 of the vision and destiny that God had, even though he did not understand probably at all how this could happen. And if his imagination in his wildest times could have imagined, it wouldn't have looked like what happened. But a seed was planted, a seed of faith was given. 
A seed of vision was given. And that's what we need. We may not understand at all, but God has a purpose for each one of us. Are we seeking Him? Are we looking to see what's going on around us? So we can have that vision to hang on to when things get difficult, challenges come. We need to continually remind ourselves that you're not an accident. I'm not an accident. God has a purpose for us. It doesn't matter what your past looked like. It doesn't matter the lies the enemy's telling you about yourself and how you're not good enough or not qualified. None of that matters. As long as we remain faithful to God, he will remain more than faithful to us and he will bless us every step of the way. So even if there is no evidence at all in the natural that God's purpose and plan is coming to pass, don't buy that lie. Believe it by faith. Joseph maintained his integrity through the whole thing. We need to do the same. Even when it cost him years in prison and slavery, he remained faithful to God. His integrity remained intact. Remember when he was being accused or he was being invited by Potiphar's wife? He says, how could I do such an evil thing and sin against God? And he lived a God-dependent life. There's no way he could have succeeded and survived without a God-dependent life. A lesson for us. Who are we depending on? Do we trust God and believe God and believe his promises? No matter what's going on in the world around us? And just like back for Joseph, the enemy will do anything he can to distract us, do anything he can to erode our faith, Fear is a good way to do that. We need to be aware of what God's doing, who He is, watching for what He's doing around us, and remain faithful to Him. Joseph waited on the Lord no matter what was happening. He watched in faith until his dream was fulfilled. You know, it's easy to lose sight of the vision or the purpose that you and I feel God has called us to. It's easy to get our eyes on the things of the world. It's easy to allow the lust of the flesh to creep in. That's why it's so important that we remain dependent upon God and humbly surrender to Him. As the worship team comes forward to close, I want to just pray for us. especially want to pray for any of us who are really feeling like I've lost track of my vision, or maybe I don't even know if I ever had one. Let's pray. If you're able, let's stand together. Father, I pray right now for each one of us here, God, that we would have a fresh sense of the call on our lives, that you would give us a vision, even though it's incomplete. We can't see the end. We can't even see all of the things along the trip to our destiny. Father, give us grace and faith to navigate the bumps in the road to our destiny. God, I pray for those that have lost hope to receive hope by your Holy Spirit. Father, those who have lost their joy, that they would receive the joy of the Lord by your Holy Spirit. Father, those that have lost the peace of God that passes all understanding, that they would receive your peace by the Holy Spirit. 
God, just refresh us, each and every one here that are always watching online. Refresh us by your Holy Spirit this morning. God, that we may go forth as your ambassadors, sharing that joy and that love and that peace and that hope with the world around us that's in such a mess. God, we pray that we would be faithful servants. Trusting in you. That we would remain humble. That we would keep our integrity intact. That we would bring you glory and honor in every way. Amen.